Welcome, welcome to our Monday gathering here uh, for the Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community. And it's a delight to see all of you today, this evening, on this holiday, Memorial Day. And actually, that's what I'd like to share with you some reflections on is on Memorial Day. And also about how it intertwines with our spiritual practice and path. How does it? And the practice itself, and to frame it in a particular way so that it, it, it's around our spiritual path and practice. And most of you probably know today, Memorial Day, you know, it's a day that's been put aside to honor those who have died in the midst of military service many of whom died as a result of the violence of war. And I don't know if any of you have ever been, have you ever been to like a, a national cemetery, like a Veterans Memorial Cemetery, with the rows and rows, yeah, of um, those white tombstones? And I just invite you to just to notice, like for me, it's so palpable the kind of emotional impact that I've had around going to such cemeteries. And sometimes even difficult to put into words, but there's something poignant to say the least about that, that, that shakes me emotionally. And it could also be around these other kind of experiences you might have had of gone going to other cemeteries or just sometimes seeing the flowers by the road or the cross or the bicycle. And I also want to say I want to acknowledge the the accident that happened Friday evening in Flagstaff of uh, the six bicyclists that were hit. One of them died in the hospital. Loss impacts us. And it's such a human thing to honor and to mourn. And what I want to slow down with, though, is that there's a particular flavor around the loss that happens around violence and in particular war that can really land in a particular way. And, and tonight, I guess I, I want to propose that maybe, maybe the best way to honor those who have died in a war is to stop the war from happening. Maybe that too is a way to honor those who have come before us, to, to end war. And, and I want to put this in this context that we're all thrown into. And you know this, but I want to lay it out to give a sense of, of the context, to get a sense of how we move forward with our spiritual path and our practice, because I think it's important. I think many of you know the, the war and violence are woven into the history of this nation that we currently call the United States. Right? The violence and war of slavery and colonization and imperialism. 
it's woven into the fabric of this nation and we're still reckoning with that, with the consequences of, of these dynamics. And to acknowledge our country continues to actively be involved in armed conflicts right now, like in Syria and Afghanistan, and indirectly, even though there's been a, a stopping of direct involvement of supporting other wars, such as the war in, in Yemen. This is woven into the fabric of, if you're here in the United States, a couple of years ago, at least what's reported, $732 billion on military spending. That's, that is uh, more than the following 10 countries combined in terms of spending. Our country is the largest arms exporter. And it's deeply woven into the history of our species as human beings. That pull, like to navigate sometimes conflict with violence. And then, then, then collectively it can uh, 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 flower out into, into war. And as a species, right, we're, we're, we still mostly deal with wrongdoing in a punitive way. It's, it's such a knee-jerk react reaction rather than in a restorative or transformative way. You know, I remember this, and I, I don't want to minimize that either of kind of how, how there can be emotional pull in that way. This is when I was still in high school. I, I started to uh, go to meetings with this group called Beyond War. Doesn't ex I don't think it exists anymore. There might be just a few members. Um, and I, I, I love the vision, going beyond war. And I remember one time there was just starting to be conversations about what was going on inside of us and how we navigate these things and this impulse to for revenge. And there was one person there and I so appreciated his honesty. He said, you know, my, my son was murdered last year. And it's so difficult for me to get beyond the sense of needing revenge in some manner. Like it's, he says, it just feels so core in a way. And so it's challenging for me, this whole realm of non-harming and non-violence because of my emotional pain. He said, you know, I can think differently and I know differently, but boy, the pull is so strong when, just because that heart, the hurt was so deep to lose my son like that. And maybe you've experienced this. It can be tricky, isn't it? When we, we get hurt and then there's the impulse to hurt back. So, so here it is. Here it can be in our hearts and it's around us, you know, living in a time plagued by violence, person to, whether it be person to person or nation to nation. And even during the, the Buddha's time, it was, uh, it was quite violent too, in regard to this, and we can forget this. Sometimes the Buddha is imagined, you know, imagined as living in these peaceful times, but it was quite tumultuous. Right before he was born, probably the 50, 50 to 100 years before he was born, there was this uh, tremendous upheaval in the political landscape in, in India, in, the, in Northern India, where he was. 
And it was moving from this, these structures of power that were these, you could say, tribal states, to put it simply, but that that was being taken over by these monarchies. And during the Buddhist time, there was so much war going on between these different monarchies and the tribal states that, that remained, this, this quest for domination that was disrupting a lot of the fabric of the, uh, of the, of the society at that point. This is what was around the Buddha. And I want to share with you some words from him. Because in some ways, and I imagine you to, to listen to these words as a kind of different story of how the Buddha came into spiritual practice. You know, often we're told the story that he lived in a palace and he left the palace and became a monastic. Okay, maybe. I like the story. But maybe this is a, a different story. And a different kind of seed that blossoms into spiritual practice of being moved in a particular way. So this is uh, the Buddha speaking. He says, when embraced, the rod of violent breeds danger and fear. Look at people quarreling. I will tell of how I experienced dismay. Seeing people floundering like fish in small puddles competing with one another, as I saw this, fear came into me. The world was entirely without substance. All the directions were knocked out of line. Wanting a haven for myself, I saw nothing that wasn't laid claim to. Seeing nothing in the end but competition, I felt discontent. Ah, and then, and then I saw an arrow here, so very hard to see, embedded in the heart. Overcome by this arrow, you run in all directions. But simply on pulling it out, you don't run, you don't sink. You can finally settle. I find that an interesting passage. Don't you, don't you find that striking? Right? He's confronted by seeing people quarreling and the violence that comes from that. And then it's this investigation. Where does this originate? Where does this come from? There's something in here, in the heart, in my heart. There's a thorn there. Right? A thorn that creates this violence, this disruption in our communities. Oh, and there's the solution. When I take out the thorn, this no longer happens. My internal freedom leads to a different world. Stopping the war out there by stopping the war in here. Taking the thorn out of the heart. And to me, here's the connection, right? Here's the connection of where it overlaps with our, with our spiritual practice, is when I stop the war in here, it can help stop the war out there. And again, I don't want to say like, this is the solution. I think there are political things that we have to be engaged in and 
reflections and things like that. But I think this is an important piece of what we're doing here. So how do we do that? How, how to stop the war? How do, you, how do you stop the war in here? That changes things around me. So I think that's the first thing is how do I stop the war by acting in, in terms of how I act in the world? This is a part of the spiritual pr practice. Like ethical guidelines are something that's the foundation of this path. And the Buddha talks about these five gifts. I love that he calls them gifts. They're these ethical guidelines. And you could say the, the underlying uh, feeling of them is this value of non-harming, of non-violence. And carrying forward this, this ethical value, this deep value of non-harming. And it's a training. And I want to say, which is really important, like it's a training because we live in such an ethically complex world. And I think this is really important to, to voice, especially when we're talking about war or the military and things like that, because it's complex in terms of these decisions that are made individually and globally and nationally around these things. And just to back up a little bit about how it's held, at least in early Buddhism, compared to other spiritual traditions, it is true in some spiritual traditions, some of these traditions see that some wars and some acts of violence are justified in moral, like this term, the just war. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, that phrase. No, oh, this is a just war. And I want to say in early Buddhism, you never find that kind of language. That's not the case. Basically, it's to remember actions have consequences. Violence is deeply damaging. And often the impact is generational. I think that's, that's part of that stance. And at the same time, I want to bring a complexity in this. Like with non-harming and non-violence, what I love about some of the language is that they are training. They're, we're not here to make them rigid absolutes. You know, sometimes it seems like there's those extreme circumstances where there's no other option available to prevent the cascading of harm without some kind of forceful or violent intervention. What's important to remember is even if that's the only option, it's still gonna have certain kinds of consequences. So again, I, 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 when I talk about non-harming, I'm, I'm not like proposing some kind of rigid absolutist point of view. The world's complicated in terms of these things. Yet it's remembering the impact, which I think is so important. And this is from, I'd like to share with you uh, a quote from the Veterans for Peace about Memorial Day. So I love what they say. They say, this Memorial Day, we remember all who have died in war and understand that no one wins in war. Many of us have been personally touched by war, but we must also extend that mourning. 
We must remember the civilian victims and their families who are all equally human beings. Honoring and remembering some deaths while ignoring others not only perpetuates war, but also ignores the moral injuries of war, which some now rec recognize as a significant cause of veteran suicide. There are people who profit from war, mainly those who invest in the defense industry or the oil sector, but the veterans and civilians who survive war suffer for the rest of their lives. And the entire society is robbed of billions of tax dollars, which could not be spent on jobs, education, healthcare, infrastructure, and sustainable energy. There's impact even when there might be these extreme circumstances when it's needed. And as I said, that's why I find it so helpful to see it as a training, that I'm training my heart. And this is something that I individually take on. I'm interested in this training of non-harming. And the Buddha sometimes talks about this particular training as giving the gift of fearlessness. Isn't that a cool thing to reflect on? Is like, I can give someone the sense of fearlessness. I can give someone a space of more safety. What a powerful practice to engage in. And maybe you know that feeling. Are, are there people that you feel safe around? Like one thing that we can offer to others, and sometimes it's the absence, and maybe you've felt this around people, like the person who doesn't kind of unskillfully talk bad of others and is always gossiping. Have you noticed how you yourself can feel more safe around them? Oh, this person isn't gonna be talking poorly of me. I feel safe. I can share vulnerable things with them and it's not gonna come back at me in some weird way from another person. Wow, my system settles around that. And, and often I'm not conscious of it, but like I get a feeling from somebody, I can feel their ethical integrity. And it's like, oh, I wanna hang out with them. I feel safe around them. You know, or someone who honors, you know, that you might have different preferences. It could be around the COVID thing, around mask wearing or distance. And you have somebody who's sensitive to what feels right for you. How the heart can settle. And what I want to point out, which I, I find interesting because now they're doing studies on it, is just as the impact of violence can ripple out intergenerationally, and some of you might know of the, the studies around this, of how from generation to generation, uh, they can see from a tremendous kind of trauma coming from violence, how it, it, it passes down uh, intergenerationally. But just as with these, these kind of epigenetic studies, what they've also shown is that what also can be passed down through the generations is that environments of safety pass along more resilience over the generations. Isn't that cool? When there's a kind of nurturing, supportive environment, but they're, what they're in particular studying is uh, resilience. 
it creates a resilience for people so that the, their systems can navigate stress so that the, the, the system can come down in a sense of safety. Isn't that cool that you can give a gift that actually impacts others positively, possibly for generations? I, I think that's so cool. <laughs> when I take out the thorn, I'm making a, a difference, not only for this generation, but for other generations. Oh, I can stop the war and it starts within and how I am in the world. So honoring, honoring those who have come before us by stopping the war and stopping the war within. And then another way to stop the war within. And it has to do with how my heart empathizes with situations. This is the key. Some of you, is anyone, probably some of you um, know about this term selective empathy? Everyone, anyone hear about selective empathy, how this dynamic works? It's, it's really quite interesting. Yeah, a few of you maybe. The idea is, is that what creates these massive conflicts of brutality is not a lack of empathy, but rather it's a result of increased empathy for one group over another. People getting involved in wars, they are deeply empathic people. They're just deeply empathic for one side and not the other side. This is one of the keys you could say of what happens in violent conflicts is selective empathy. What we're looking for is, is a broader sense of, sense of empathy, a broader sense of compassion, not just my team, because that's the thorn that creates these violent conflicts. And you can see this also selective empathy of what gets our attention, what we give our attention to individually, but also what we give our attention to collectively and how this plays out. So one example of this, some of you probably remember in, in January of 2015, there was the, really tragic uh, uh, killing of 14 people and 11 were injured in the offices of the, the newspaper, uh, Charlie Hebdo in, in Paris, you remember that? It's really, there was, there was world outrage about that. Just a few months after that, I'm wondering how many of you know about this, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the carnage that happened at Garissa University in Garissa, Kenya. In some ways, it was a really similar situation. In Paris, there was gunmen loosely connected with Al-Qaeda. In Kenya, there was a militant group loosely connected with Al-Qaeda. 149 students were killed, 79 injured, 700 students were held hostage. Yet it was in Kenya and they were black. Does anyone, did anyone know of the Garissa 
university killings? Don't you find that striking? That there was empathy for what happening, happened at uh, Charlie Hebdo, which was tragic. I'm not trying to minimize that. But how something that was even more tragic, similar, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda was invisibilized. Selective empathy. It determines what we see and what we hear about. It determines the groups that we side with and the groups that we don't side with. I need to practice expanding my sense of compassion. I, I find this really important. How can I empathize and have compassion? Let me refine it, the sense of compassion, not only for quote unquote, my group where it's easy, but what about the people in the other group? That's taking the thorn out, that's stopping the war when you take time to do that, when you train the heart in that way. The ones I usually see as the problem. And, and I wanna be clear, it's not about condoning certain behaviors. It's not about that. It's more about, can I take the time to more deeply understand the situations that confront me? To undermine us and them to undermine my team and the other team. Wow, I can stop the war, the war within that can last for generations. And then it's even deeper, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that you can be at war with yourself? Ever noticed that? It's wild, isn't it? Like just the, the thoughts and the words that we can say to ourselves that you would never ever say to another person. Isn't that crazy? It's wild that I treat myself that way. What would it be like to stop the war with yourself? It's this practice, isn't it? When the thoughts come up, yeah, I don't, I'm not interested in believing them, just as I'm not interested in condoning certain behaviors of others. But I don't need to fight that part of my experience, that arising of thoughts and emotions. I just need to see it and disentangle. So it doesn't have a grip on me. But, but I find creating the war with those aspects of myself or those arisings in the mind just leads to more hurt, more entanglement and trouble. And this is the art. Can you, can you simply see, notice with acceptance what's arising, not believing it, not going down that road, but also not fighting it. In that simple practice of being mindful in that particular way that I'm talking about, can be really powerful. I remember it was a while ago, a, a practitioner was sharing with me that they said I could share this because I, 
find this so striking. It was about after they had been practicing for about a year intensively. They uh, they came they came back from a retreat and and actually the end of the retreat was a little bit disturbing for them. So at the end of the retreat, a lot of the retreatants were sharing how they had like this big insight about a family dynamic that had been going on in their lives, or an insight about you know another psychological difficulty that they had, and this practitioner felt kind of like, wow, I, I didn't have any of those happen on my retreat. Or maybe this was a crappy retreat. I don't know. You know, So they were a little bit confused, but they went home. And the thing that they started to realize that was so striking after this actually what turned out to be a really powerful retreat is that their inner critic wasn't arising. Like they, they said like... <laughs> Like it was like six months, no inner critic. It was really quite striking. Like it was just like gone. And it's true after, after six months, the inner critic started to seep back in. But again, what was the thing that lasted was a, a stronger disidentification with those, with those uh, thoughts and those beliefs. And there was less charge. So yeah, it was still happening but something dramatically shifted. And what I want to point out after, after the retreat, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're going to need the name of that retreat. You're right, you're right now. <laughs> they, they couldn't describe that this had happened, right? Because it wasn't like something happened. What were the, the, the striking thing was, is what was not happening anymore. <laughs> it's not something that they could even share about. And yet it was really freeing. It was stopping the war within. And yes, it's true. I mean, I'm giving you kind of the, the dramatic story. Often it takes a lot of work with that inner critic of practicing self-compassion, the not believing, the stopping the thought without, without fighting it. Softening around the inner critic, seeing that it's just an arising and passing away. It's a, it's a practice, but that relationship can change to stop the war within. Yeah, so may we, through our spiritual practice, may we stop the war in here in order to stop the war out there. <laughs>